Very good. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I think we should have most people on our session now um, who've joined up, and many thanks indeed for joining us today uh, at um, our panel, um, which has as its subject, Navigating Today's Legal Mindstrom, Milestrom, I should say. Um, and I have on my panel, which I will be moderating, a very distinguished group of uh, legal professionals. We'll be talking to a number of very important issues as they affect ship earning in the current climate. My name is Joe Hughes. I'm the chairman and chief executive of the managers of the American P&I Club based here in New York. Um, three of us, I think, actually on the panel are actually based here and um, three from London. So we have uh, a true transatlantic balance of, uh, of participants. Um, Having introduced myself, may I begin by introducing um, the panelists. Um, ladies first, Beth Bradley is a partner of Hill Dickinson in London. Beth specializes in commercial dispute resolution across a range of, of maritime activity in all parts of the world. She has very broad experience of matters um, relating to a wider spectrum of um, adjudicative forums from arbitration to litigation in the courts of several countries. Um, Dora Mace-Kakota is a partner of Stevenson Harwood, um, also based in London. Dora is an asset finance specialist with a particular focus on the shipping sector. She acts for a broad range of international banks and other financial institutions with particular experience in Europe and Asia. Sally Ann Underhill is a partner of Reed Smith in London. Uh, Sally Ann has a very broad commercial practice in shipping and trading, uh, encompassing clients, again, from all parts of the world. We're very international in our reach here, uh, with, a with a special em emphasis on the Greek, Indian, and Middle Eastern markets. In that context, uh, Sally Ann is the co-managing partner of Reed Smith's Athens office. Um, Bruce Paulson, uh, also here in New York. Uh, but not actually here. He's in another, he's in his apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'm in the Upper East Side. Is a partner of Seward and Kissel, um, a law firm in New York. Uh, Bruce has a very broad commercial practice across a wide spectrum of specializations, ranging from um, jurisdictional, uh, traditional marine matters to finance and securities litigation, and also to sanctions issues, which we will be talking about, uh, I think, at some length which are, of course, very much in the industry spotlight at the present time. And last, but certainly uh, not least, it, we have John Cassane, a partner of Watson, Farley and Williams, again here in New York, I think in Manhattan um, also. Uh, John is a partner in the dispute resolution group of um, uh, w, WFW. Um, his extensive uh, practice is focused on commercial litigation and arbitration, insolvencies and workouts, stock and asset acquisitions, company filings, and commercial contracts. So we have a, a very expert panel and a very broad range of specializations actually uh, available for, for our discussions. What I thought I'd do to begin um, is ask some general questions that relate to the four specific uh, issues that have been identified in the introduction to the um, to, to our panel. Um, the first concerns sulfur cap. The 2020 sulfur cap issues appear to have faded somewhat um, into the background since, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic 
took centre stage and uh, has um, dominated the collective consciousness of the shipping industry. Are you experiencing anything in your practices which runs counter to that observation? And if so, what are you seeing? Beth, do you want to talk about that to begin with? Um, thank you. Um, yes and no, I think is the kind of answer from my point of view in terms of my practice related to the sulfur cap. Um, I think in November, December, it, it was being forecast that we'd see a number of issues, um, particularly around the quality of um, the low sulfur fuel being supplied, whether that was in relation to the cap itself or uh, in relation to the kind of new blends that were being put together in order to um, supply lots of low sulfur fuel for the 1st of January. And it was busy, you know, towards the end of December with people raising queries about those two issues and it's tailed off a bit. Now, that's not to say that um, we're not handling claims that relate to quality issues arising out of low blended fuels, but it, it's a handful rather than a, a kind of uh, avalanche of them. Um, and I think there are reasons for that. And I think COVID-19 is probably one of the main reasons why there's a lower emphasis where it's, it's not such a headline issue any longer or, or at least at this point of in, in the year. Um, and I think that uh, is brought about in, in terms of lower volume of traffic. Um, so there's less need for, the, for, for bunkers at the moment um, overall. And, and I think enforcement isn't really happening in, in many ports mm. around the globe. So the, the kind of stack of claims that one would have expected to see, particularly as we moved into the second half of 2020, as enforcement started to take place and as owners were, were starting to look for recourse, if they actions if, if available against their time charters or suppliers, um, because there's a lack of enforcement happening, those types of, it, it's just not a horizon issue at the moment. Interesting. Sally-Ann, do you have anything to add to that at all? Yeah, just unmute myself. Um, yeah, I think the, I agree. I agree with you fundamentally that it has really taken uh, backseat at the moment. We'll come on to talk to COVID, no doubt. At some mm. And COVID has really taken over what we've been doing, certainly at the beginning of this year. And although it's slowly peaching out a bit, we can talk later about what's still happening. Like Beth, we were expecting lots of issues arising out of the sulfur regs this year. And for obvious reasons, that hasn't really been happening. What we have seen is a number of clients who have been looking to extract themselves from sulfur commitments, in particular um, scrubbers. So mm -hmm. the question has really been to what extent we can rely on lack of um, availability of uh, personnel at the Chinese yards in the first instance, then what, to what extent can we rely upon the fact that we haven't got surveyors who can attend and all those personnel type issues that we've been seeing going on and on. So that's the sort of issue that was not at all expected, <laughs> but has been arising. And then there also are contracts, so not just with the, the yards that are fitting, but people had also entered into contracts which were premised on vessels having scrubbers fitted at some stage, often towards the early part of this year. And whilst people are now thinking that they have ne haven't necessarily got the money to do that, 
people are also looking to see how they can avoid those contracts as well. And that's working both ways. You know, people don't want to invest the money in, in the scrubbers in the first place. And the people who were taking vessels with scrubbers don't want to be paying the extra premium for those vessels. Uh, so there has been a number of issues that have arisen with that. And the other thing that is IMO related, but is not scrubber related, is just the interest that there has been in finalizing LNG contracts. So I know at the moment there has been, uh, over the last couple of days, there's been suggestions in the press about the LNG rates going down and the fact that the order books for LNGs is going through the roof, which is, is a worrying sign for that market. But we have been dealing with the supply contracts and the trading contracts for the LNG products, and that seems to be something that people are still very interested in. Not sure how it's going to progress, but at the moment that's people have still got a definite eye on that. So those are the two main real issues that we've seen. They say not what we were expecting, not at all the same emphasis, but definitely still providing us with some work. Yeah, a bit of a knock-on effect. What about what about your firm, Dora? Have, have you experienced anything of particular note in this context? Yeah, I think it's just to supplement what Salian and Beth have been saying. Um, I think from what we have been seeing, particularly in the new year, um, a lot of the owners seem to have moved a bit further away from scrubbers, uh, which mm. I think is what, uh, with what uh, Salian and, and Beth were saying. Perhaps because you know, of the logistical issues in terms of uh, having them on and sort of completing the project of, of having them on, but also because I think operationally people have seen that uh, perhaps they can manage with the, with, the, with the fuel that is needed and therefore mm. they're trying to get uh, away or out of the of the scrubbers environment um, but in, in, in sort of I, I think it's quite interesting though that in the finance context I think the movement is probably slightly different in that um, the banks have got into the Poseidon project and principles mm. so much uh, that I think that continues with more signatories coming on board um, and I think there is a bit of a discrepancy because obviously the banks are moving one way uh, but uh, perhaps the, the, the interest of the owners is shifting a slightly different way. Although Poseidon is not as prescriptive in terms of how that is achieved. So um, I'm thinking that the general movement is a continuing focus on, on the sulfur cup issues, but perhaps a movement away from uh, the scrubbers, I would say. Interesting, indeed. I tell you, there was a great deal of marine insurance angst across the world, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the anticipation of there being multiple breakdowns of, uh, of engine, multiple engine breakdowns created by the fact that the fuel wasn't up to scratch and all the rest of it in the transitional period. But um, unless I've missed something, we haven't actually seen that to any extent happily. But, um, and I think also, I mean, the relative, and I'm not a, a shipping economist, but the relative value of the scrubbers has changed a bit, hasn't it, in relation to uh, the, the spread between high sulfur fuel oil and low sulfur fuel oil, which I understand has narrowed, so, well, it did, narrow quite a bit, I would imagine, when the, the price of oil dropped to record lows some months ago. But anyway, John, what do you think about that? Have, have you had any solid yeah. experience? Uh, you know, before the uh, deadline, uh, there are many people interested in getting scrubbers, how to finance scrubbers, thinking that scrubbers would be necessary. And then there were the smaller ship owners who were saying, you know, it makes no sense for me to put on a scrubber on a five or 10 year old vessel mm -hmm. when it's one tenth the cost. 
So, you know, it was kind of interesting to see how that worked out. And basically the cost of the scrubber doesn't seem to justify it. Uh, after COVID started, we had several vessels in yards uh, that were held up uh, because of um, the yard workers not being able to report in these types of delays, uh, mm. force majeure uh, causes. Uh, so that that's a problem now as well. You know, nobody really wants to get stuck in the yard doing one of these. Um, but in the end, it's been a relatively uh, light area of concern after the sulfur cap came into effect because of the availability of low sulfur fuels and the cost of it. Uh, so it shows that those people that were betting on that to happen may have been correct. It's amazing how the world can turn so quickly in a direction that nobody really anticipated at all, of course. Bruce, what about you? Has your firm experienced anything notable in this connection? Well, since we're referencing um, COVID-19, I'll raise an issue that comes up in my, the volunteer portion of my life where I chair the board of the Siemens Church Institute, which uh, America's largest and oldest seafarers agency. And, and the issues, uh, which are not issues that we're litigating, of, of seafarers who are unable to get off their ships and be repatriated. Uh, and then, you know, hundreds of thousands of seafarers who are unable to get on their ships and get paid. Um, so a very interesting uh, conundrum um, for the industry arriving, arising um, from COVID-19. Indeed. Well, that, of course, is one of the, uh, the major subjects for our further discussion. And perhaps I can go straight on to that, actually. Um, well, it, in, in what areas of your respective specializations in the legal field have you seen the greatest volume of, of, of inquiries in regard to COVID-19 and general client concern? as to the consequences of COVID-19. Now, that's a very, very large question. I'm sure that each of you will have um, a different perspective on it. But Bruce, seeing as you raised COVID-19, why don't you uh, lead us off? Well, I mean, obviously the issues of performance and force majeure are, are, are front and center. Um, and, and I think that, uh, um, and we see this whenever there's a major event, obviously COVID-19 is global. Uh, but uh, in the past, whether it's a hurricane, earthquake, some sort of substantial act of God or other disaster that prevents performance of contracts, uh, there's always a flurry um, to get out of transactions um, based on force majeure clauses. Now, force majeure clauses are not always drafted the same way. Uh, in, in fact, uh, they're often quite different. Um, but commercial arbitrators and judges looking at force majeure clauses are gonna construe them quite narrowly. Um, and if there's any possibility of performance, they're not gonna excuse performance. They may allow performance to be delayed, uh, but not altogether excused. Um, so for parties of a mind to cancel a contract based on force majeure, uh, which is often the inclination, um, this, this gives rise to arbitrations, not solutions, Great for lawyers, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it is not a uh, silver bullet. Interesting. Dora, what are you seeing on the financial side uh, in relation to COVID-19? Quite a lot, I would imagine, in regard to, you know, financing arrangements and people trying to amend or, or uh, remove themselves from those arrangements. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there is definitely a lot of uh, movements that we're seeing across all of our offices at Stevenson Harwoods. Um, I think perhaps 
what we were expecting a bit earlier on and hasn't yet transpired, but I think perhaps it will transpire um, uh, depending on, on how long the whole situation related to COVID continues around the globe, is um, restructuring in the wider sense of things and insolvency uh, related issues and concerns. Um, I don't think that we have seen many sort of, you know, dramatic things uh, happening in terms of big restructuring as such as yet. Uh, but there are a lot of inquiries that we are receiving constantly um, about sort of, you know, payments, holidays, how these can be affected, whether banks will accept these, but also um, the whole sort of relationship and how it's all being dealt in terms of certain breaches that are happening under the finance documents like uh, financial covenants, uh, breach of loan to value covenants, um, and potentially certain events of default that are being triggered and how um, how these are, are to, be, to be dealt with. Um, I think interestingly, from, from at least an English law perspective, um, we, were, uh, we were very interested to see the recent guidance uh, that was issued um, here in, in the UK, which, which is not statutory and therefore not binding in terms of law, but it was very interesting to see how um, sort of the government steps in and, and almost tells parties that you need to act reasonably in the context of what's happening with COVID, in the context of all your contracts, and in the context of how you're treating your relationships, if you're not making payments, if you're not receiving payments, if you're considering, um, you know, waiving or not waiving events of default, if you're considering enforcement and so on and so forth. So I, I think from, from, from that point of view, this is something that uh, we're looking at quite closely because although I say not binding, I think it will play a lot into how the courts look at these things if the situation uh, becomes uh, more, more dramatic or as, you know, sort of restructurings or insolvencies and so on escalate a bit further. Interesting. John, have you seen an increase in uh, activity related to COVID-19 in your sphere, particularly in the finance front? Yes, uh, we've seen significant uh, amount of defaults under loans and requests to lenders for modification and forbearance. Um, many of these are foreign companies, but nevertheless, uh, the lenders are showing significant interest in uh, US Chapter 11 because these foreign companies are threatening to file that if they do not get uh, the modifications or forbearance that they want. What, what, and what are the particular attractions of Chapter 11 to foreign entities, do you think? Uh, well, for, for uh, a, a debtor or a borrower, it's quite attractive. Um, first of all, there's a very low threshold to file for Chapter 11 in the United States. All company needs is some property in the U.S. that can be satisfied by simply an account or even money held with uh, an attorney in an escrow account. And all of a sudden, there's jurisdiction to employ... Mm. Chapter 11, and Chapter 11 is known to be quite debtor-friendly. It provides significant uh, benefits to a debtor. I mean, the first of which, of course, is the automatic worldwide stay. That prevents mm. any, any demands, uh, any actions that are pending must be stopped. And, you know, this is not available in any other jurisdiction where uh, the, the courts pretend or try to make it a worldwide stay. Uh, the fact is that the U.S. has, uh, you know, such a reach that it can do that in most cases. Uh, other things that the, the debtor or borrower gets in Chapter 11 is the ability to look at executory contracts. That's contracts like charters or leases. And they can terminate those if, if, uh, if they're underwater, if it's not a good deal. And 
for larger companies, this uh, they can assume contracts. So if they want to sell division to finance themselves, they can actually assume all the contracts in that division, despite the fact that they may have non-assignment clauses, and then sell off the whole division. So you know, there's significant benefits uh, for 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 the debtors. Interesting. Beth, what have you seen on the COVID-19 front in particular? Well, it's been changeable, I think, a bit like how the pandemic spread across the world. The type of queries that came in uh, have changed as, as time has gone on. So um, at the end of February, we had an awful lot of queries about force majeure under all sorts of different types of contracts and whether force majeure could be relied on in the particular circumstances, uh, particularly in China. Um, that largely, other than under uh, shipbuilding contracts, has tailed off where the force majeure clauses there are, are potentially a little bit more fitting. Um, and now the majority of our work is, is, is either strengthening existing terms to try and come up with uh, a, a type of force majeure clause which might work or might be more appropriate depending on the contract. Um, but also, as I think um, Sally-Ann mentioned at, at the beginning, it's, it's dealing with those contracts where you need physical attendance on board and if you can't get class or another surveyor or the crew changed in order to um, kind of take delivery, whether of a new build or, or under a cell form. Um, it is those kind of physical issues which are causing you know, real difficulties. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's in that area really that, that, that we're seeing quite a bit of work, um, together with renegotiation, particularly of long-term commitments, uh, where the, the, the kind of seller has a lower need to sell or, or, or has lost its market in terms of the commodity that it had planned to shift and the knock-on effects under the shipping contracts um, and the contracts of freightment. So as, as, as time has moved on, you know, we've kind of dealt with force majeure largely, dealing with uh, the kind of renegotiation of contracts and also that kind of feeling that it's time to start dusting off the cross-border insolvency regulations again, um, just in case, it, you know, companies start to, start to go into insolvency. Interesting. Tell me, Sally-Ann, I mean, we talk about, you know, the problems that are being created by COVID-19. What opportunities do you see for the shipping industry coming out of COVID-19 and what lessons uh, to be are there to be learned from the experience of COVID-19? Okay, so I'm um, picking up what, on what Beth said. Um, because of one of the biggest issues that we've had, so our very first instructions in respect of COVID were in relation, as you say as well, Beth, to um, particular ship sale and purchase contracts. So the difficulty with the ship sale and purchase contracts was that people were looking desperately in the standard forms for force majeure provisions as they were entering into them, weren't finding any, and were trying to create some sort of bespoke, but therefore heavily weighted in their favor contracts, which often came to nothing. And that has really meant that at the moment there's, there's not that much um, new sale and purchase going on because people are still worried and it's, quite, and it's quite difficult. So one of the things that we can all do is we can start to look at contracts and we can start to make sure that, although I don't think anybody could have predicted COVID, you know, we'd had years of SARS and other various things which had, had you know, had been there but had not impacted the industry in this way. So. You know, I don't think anyone's at fault for not having anticipated it. Uh, it certainly gives us an opportunity to think about what will happen 
in the future um, if something like this um, or God forbid something worse than this ever happens and how we deal with it. So looking at our contracts and making sure that we deal with force majeure in the widest possible way. And also then, and I very much relate to what Bruce said about the crew, the crew that are stuck on board vessels um, to this day. And we've got the ITF telling people now not to, not to perform their contracts. Um, it's absolutely unbelievable that we have got situations where we have had people in the ship, sale and purchase contract um, sort of um, basis where they have not been able to get off the vessels, other people haven't been able to get on. So that's been really basic and you've then been in a situation where you've got, you've got yourself stuck. But for me, what I've seen more firsthand and what has bothered me more has been the cruise ships. So the other issue that we really saw lots of in the, in the in early days, really, so I'm talking beginning of March and before then, is when we had the situation where cruise ships were going to ports, they had somebody on board with a, a sniffle. And because they got a sniffle, the cruise ships weren't allowed to go in and they were held, held off the shore. And, and then that led on to the situation where the cruise ships couldn't continue to trade and the cruises were cancelled. Passengers, by and large, and there was a fairly horrific tale um, recanted in the Sunday Times this week about some people who were stuck on board one of the cruise ships, one of them in a windowless cabin, which is not for the faint-hearted to read. But by and large, the passengers <coughs> were, were taken off. Uh, but we've still got crew on board those ships, some of whom are, have been trying to commit suicide and, and we therefore need to learn from that as well. So a situation where, as with so many things going on in the world at the moment, we actually embrace the fact that we will need to be looked after and that you ensure that people can get off and can get home. So hopefully we will learn that from this, if nothing else. In terms then of the need for people on board and embracing change. We, we've been in a situation where we're all at home. We're all at home. It's completely different. So people have said that we've done more in more in a, I don't know, overnight in some of our cases than was ever anticipated to happen over 10 years. Things like blockchain. Blockchain enables you to know where your product's coming from, enables you to know what specifications it has, and it has great potential. I, I tend to think that if blockchain doesn't make it after this, there's poss possibly no chance for it in the shipping community. You know, the thought of you know, the number of times a piece of paper is touched, it's, it's some scary number like 200. You know, now we don't touch anything that someone else has touched without rubber gloves on. You know, it's inconceivable that we'll stick to the old habits, but let's see, because it's, it's easy to go back to your old ways. Um, so also remote surveys, those sorts of things. So cost savings, basically. So at the moment, we've got so much in terms of the, the need to fit your scrubber, to comply with all of the environmental requirements. All of those things cost money. At the same time, we can save money. So uh, perhaps lawyers like us will not be in our, in our offices anymore. Uh, perhaps we will simply be having remote surveys and you know things like even like courts um, in the in the UK, and I'm not quite sure what you've been doing in the states, but in the UK we've certainly managed to have hearings that have been held remotely, some with great degree of success. And even authorities now, there was an authority the other week 
about whether it's fair to have a court hearing when one of the parties is represented in court and the other party is represented by somebody who's, who's remote, remote working. So there's, um, there's a big change there as well. So um, lots really, I could, I could go on, yeah. but, uh, but there's, plenty, there's plenty to be learned, plenty of opportunities. Thank you, Sally-Ann. Let's go on now to the dreaded subject of sanctions. Um, I mean, obviously the sanctions landscape has, become, has been becoming increasingly complex over recent years and, and in particular uh, over the recent past. Um, what general advice do you offer your clients to avoid the pitfalls to which they may be exposed in their particular trades? And um, do these pitfalls vary from trade to trade? And if so, how? Bruce, do you want to uh, make some comments on that? Sure. I, I think, uh, Joe, at the beginning, you mentioned that the sanctions were in the industry spotlight. But I think uh, what's really true is that the industry is in the government spotlight. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> if you go back to uh, one of the first attempts by the U.S. Congress to legislate sanctions law extraterritorially in 2010 under the Obama administration, something called the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions and Divestiture Act of 2010, which sought to sanction uh, non-US companies doing business uh, with Iran. And it was clear from that piece of legislation, which focused specifically on the shipping company, not only shipping companies, but those that insure them and those that finance them. And uh, um, a lot of uh, shipping companies, because of concerns about being sanctioned, even though they were not subject to US jurisdiction, got out of the Iranian market and it had uh, an impact. And since then, uh, our Treasury's Department of uh, uh, Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, um, has had a laser-like focus on shipping, and that has only increased, and it's increased dramatically in the last year, and even more so in the last six to eight months. Um, uh, between North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela, um, the turning on and off of AIS transponders, um, uh, name changes, flag changes, ship-to-ship -ship transfers, uh, and other evasions of U.S. sanctions law, um, OFAC is looking right at shipping. Uh, last week, in connection with Venezuela, four substantial companies had their uh, vessel owning, owning uh, subsidiaries and vessels named to our specially designated national or uh, SDN list. Um, June 8, 100 um, shipping companies named, um, <clears throat> over 100, I think it's 121 uh, in connection with Iranian business. Um, the uh, the uh, companies operating in the Venezuelan oil sector, picking up Petavesa oil, um, are in the crosshairs uh, of OFAC. And in the middle of all this, about two and a half weeks ago, OFAC took a host of its guidance about the shipping industry and compiled it into one place. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, this focuses on a number of dis different issues. Um, first and foremost is, is the importance of having uh, an institutionalized compliance plan and uh, that you need to have a real compliance plan, not just one you took off the internet or your lawyers prepared and you put in a file drawer, but one that has lived from the top down. Um, maybe five years ago, a ship owner could say, 
well, I mean, I don't really know what's on the ship. It's time charted out and it's ordered around by somebody else. And um, so why would I know? Uh, OFAC's view is it's, it's your ship. Uh, you need to know what's on it. You need to know where it's going. And if it's going to a bad place, you need to put contractual provisions in place in your charter parties or in MOAs um, to be sure that uh, the vessels you lease out or sell aren't going to sanction jurisdictions. So the compliance program is important. You need best practices for AIS use. You need to monitor ships throughout their lifetime. Um, you need to know your customer. Uh, AYC is becoming an extremely important part of sanctioned compliance. And if you're in a shipping company, even a company with a few ships and a handful of employees, um, you're gonna have to do this stuff or there's uh, trouble ahead. Thank you, but I, I saw you nodding, Dora. What's your experience been of all this? Not dissimilar, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, no, it has been it has been very similar indeed. I mean, the the flavour of uh, the week or the last two weeks has definitely been Venezuela. So we've received uh, um, quite a lot of inquiries and and uh, we've provided a lot of advice um, for for Greek ship owners who have uh, who have been or some of them have been in the middle of this. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that in the last few years, I mean, the the general activity in the sanctions sphere has has flared up considerably, um, and we see inquiries that relate to the change of sanctions laws, like it happens with Venezuela, or somebody changes their mind slightly, or a regime was withdrawn or beefed up, and therefore then you know you get a lot of inquiries and a lot of action on the back of that. Um, we also had a lot of inquiries, and we dealt a lot with the. Um, uh, issues around the entities that are listed on uh, sex, sectoral sanctions identification lists, but where the actual activity, for example, chartering, breaking up slightly to them, is not necessarily caught. In sorry, can you hear me now? Just yes, just about. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yeah. Um, I was just saying that that creates a whole host of issues around what parties can do in terms of the chartering, but on the back of that, it creates a lot of issues potentially in their financings as well. And then yeah. banks have to take a view about how they can deal with reputationally, but also um, in terms of actual risk on the basis of their documents and so on. Um, and then for us in terms of spending time has been exploring and advising on um, conflicting regimes potentially so what happens when the one sanctions regime under certain law suggests something and then you've got uh, another regime like you know the european laws um suggesting something else with the parties caught in the middle and wanting to potentially comply with both but but that becomes impossible and therefore how do you choose and who do you keep happy and all of that which is which is obviously uh, re really complicated um, and i think it just it just all comes down to what Bruce has been saying, and which is the other area that we, we have been spending a lot of time with clients on, is that I think this KYC has become, you know, KYC and then knowing your customer's customer and doing mm. KYC on them, on them and then just going down the chain and then up the chain in terms of financiers and then how much they need to know about what happens 
to the vessel and and you know where the vessel goes all the way down to charters and so on and so forth so so this compliance plan and program i think is is in the middle uh, and in the center of everything um and it's something that you know everybody needs to spend a lot of time on in order to have an approach that that puts them in the right place from from the top to the bottom as bruce said john do you have anything to add to that uh you know uh there's some new lng regulations which you know, we've just started exporting LNG from the U.S. and uh, we're entering into these contracts. And these contracts require uh, the purchaser to report back to the seller of the LNG who operates the plant uh, exactly where it's going. And they can't go to a sanctioned country, of course. But, you know, sometimes these cargos are sold several times while in transit. And this uh, pushes that obligation down. And so there's been a push to have an indemnity for this going back but the damages could be so huge if the LNG plant cannot comply with the regulations. So, uh, you know, this is just a new area that uh, we're looking into since this is new for us, uh, exporting LNG. And it's kind of a strange requirement and whether you indemnify somebody for LNG plant closing is significant because you don't send a piece of paper back to the government. Yes. Yeah, you're caught between a rock and a hard place very frequently, aren't you, if you're a ship owner in these circumstances? Sally Ann, what do you, uh, what's your experience of this? Uh, probably the same as the others, really. So I, I agree very much with what Dora was saying about how the loyal client is becoming more extensive. So it's not just the individual that you're with, but other people. And really emphasizing that, uh, you know, due diligence is something we've been talking about for a long time. I think part of your question, which was a while ago now, but part of your question was, should it be different depending on different um, trades? Yes. Yeah. So there, there can be nuances, obviously, and there can be underlying reasons for the, the given sanctions, and there can therefore be exemptions and exceptions to the sanctions. Mm. But if you're starting to think, oh, maybe I don't need to do my due diligence properly because it's only such and such, you're going down a quite a scary route. And, you know, we've seen enough, um, like yours, Dora, has been working with some of the people who've recently um, been added to the lists and their vessels have been added. So we've been, we've been dealing with that, but that, that's quite an extreme ex state to be in. There's quite a lot that's short of that that still causes considerable business utter chaos really insofar as if you've been to venezuela we've had a situation for well over a year whereas if you go to venezuela even innocently you can be in a position where you can't get paid so you know it's risky business you think oh it's just about worth the risk i'll go maybe i'll slightly fudge my due diligence maybe your lawyer is not being completely frank with you and is encouraging you to do it but at the end of the day, it's not just being put on a list. It can also just be that you don't get paid. Um, and <laughs> generally people want to get paid for what they're doing. So there's a whole gamut of issues. Um, but, you know, do your DD properly. And don't, don't mm. Beth, what about uh, your view on this? I would echo everything that's been said before, particularly about the importance of doing due diligence and not starting off down the or starting off with the approach of how do I um, how do I circumvent or, or or make this troubling thing that I have to do a little bit easier for myself because it is a bit of a slippery slope and it's. It, it, 
the downsides are, are, are pretty stark um, as and when you're found out about it. Um, so we're seeing, you know, very, very similar things. It, the, I suppose what has made the sanctioned space um, uh, more challenging than, than uh, a couple of years ago is, is that the regimes particularly coming out of the States appear to change overnight depending on, on, on how somebody in the White House has slept that evening and, and, and who's in their particular focus, which uh, adds an extra layer of um, jeopardy. And, and I think I'm probably not alone in approaching anything to do with sanctions very, very, very cautiously. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And I think actually we've almost run out of time. Well, we have, I'm told, time is up. So that is a brilliant coda to uh, a really very interesting um, series of discussions. Thank you very much indeed, everyone, for participating so, so brilliantly to, uh, to our panel. Um, I, I'm certain that everybody who's had the privilege of participating today will know a great deal more about all these uh, Ch very challenging issues at the moment and thank you very much indeed for all who have indeed participated and in particular to my fellow panelists for uh, uh, for the last 45 minutes or so thank you very much thank you thanks jane thank you everybody. thank you thank you everyone bye bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye.